0: 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. This morning we conclude the series on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as I said a moment ago, the message with which I conclude is not in the most proper sense a message on the second coming. Everything until now has been. Now, this is the last of that series. But as I've said in a certain sense, it isn't to deal with the second coming of Christ. It does have to do with prophetic events as the second coming of Jesus does and I said there are in the midst of the number of things people speculate about on prophetic themes interesting things but not necessarily edifying because they're so speculative there are three things that are not speculative at all and that command really our our primary interest and attention and the first is the fact that Jesus is coming again the second is the great truth of the resurrection of the dead both the those alive in Christ and those outside of Christ and the third truth is the truth of the eternal state, or the fact of heaven and hell. And this morning I'm dealing with that under the subject title, The Glory of Heaven and the Horror of Hell. I don't know of any subject which is for me more difficult than this. There are two subjects I find considerable difficulty with. The subject of hell and the subject of financial giving. And I have difficulty with both of them for the same reason. First, let me say why I don't have difficulty with them when I do teach on them, and it's because they are both extremely biblical, and to understand both can be extremely blessed and fulfilling and purposeful, not simply a matter of acquired intellectual information. The difficulty is because both have been sadly caricatured. There are people that have been burned out by both subjects, by ingracious and manipulative handling of each of them. I don't think that I've been guilty of that ever. If I've been guilty of anything on either of those subjects, it's not of avoiding them completely, but it's of perhaps not saying as much as might be said. But I want to deal with the subject this morning of the glory of heaven, which isn't difficult, but the horror of hell is. Again, not because it need not be understood or that we ought to take it lightly, but because there's so much... Of the stereotype in the minds of so many people the picture of a bible thumping preacher without compassion screaming at sinners and damning them to hell the glib use of the phrase fire and brimstone in our culture tells us something about the disaffection and the disinterest of people in this theme on this theme but i i want to hasten to say that those words not only the subject of hell which they represent But those words, fire and brimstone, are biblical terms. And it is not any delight on God's part to deal with them. And yet, he does deal with heaven and hell, even-handedly. And in this passage of Scripture, both are dealt with. I'd like us to look at this, but we will be looking at other passages. And there are two extended passages of Scripture from which I'm going to ask you to join me later in the message to read directly and extensively. Because I thought that perhaps the best thing we could do is just let God's Word speak for itself. Somewhat on both themes. But let me caution you in this regard this morning that we are not even scratching the surface on either theme. There's a great deal in the Bible on both heaven and hell, on the eternal state of blessedness and the eternal state of judgment. And yet the Bible is not a book about heaven and hell. The Bible is a book about God's way, his will and his plan for man and his love that is woven through all of that, his way, his will, and his plan. The Bible is a book of God's love and his will. And it is only a commentary on the the pathetically pygmied mind of man that causes there to be so small, so petty, and so unjustified an attack on God as frequently is made when the subject of hell is brought up. For God did not design hell to begin with. Hell was brought about by necessity. And then having been brought about by necessity, had to be enlarged. God did not plan hell. It became the necessary option for those who willed to set themselves at cross-grained purposes with the creator of the universe. And it is impossible for God to resign his creation and go elsewhere. It is his creation. He loves it and is committed to it. And consequently, if there is anything that defiles or opposes it, it must have its own place developed if it chooses to be aligned with other than the creative order of God's love and goodness. So hell was not planned at the onset, and the Bible shows that, and it had to be enlarged later because of those who relentlessly, blindly, and stupidly will to defy and deny the will of the one who made them because they don't understand what really is the theme of his heart and the theme of his word. It's his love and his benevolent purpose for every creature. Now we're going to deal with that subject then this morning. We're going to begin in the 18th chapter of Matthew reading the words... Of the Lord Jesus, for the most part, verses one and two set us up and the rest are Jesus words himself. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and if he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly. I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so... It is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Heaven and hell both are referred to in these words of Jesus' teaching. He mentions heaven by the expression the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God in people's lives. The kingdom of heaven is not only heaven where you go if you've chosen that rule in your life in this lifetime. The kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven in a very real sense, is the rule of God happening in one's life now. But a person goes to be with the Lord, so that if a person is humbled as a little child, they not only enter into the dimensions of kingdom living now, the kingdom of heaven, but they will go to the presence of the Lord forever, ever to be under his blessed and wonderful rule, in the center of his light, life and love. Just at the onset, let me say this. It is amazing to me the number of people who choose to believe in an afterlife, but who choose it on their own terms, by their own definition, and with their own will predominating. God doesn't allow for that. It has to do with a kingdom. God is not running a democracy. He is the Lord. But as I've already said, neither is He a puppeteer. He's not created a band of marionettes. He has created creatures with incredibly awesome capacities of self-destiny, of self-will. I'd like for you to say these words with me. According to the nature of God's creating me, my will is as strong as his. Say that and then I'll interpret it, will you? According to the nature of God's creating me, my will is as strong as his. I don't mean by that that yours or my strength of purpose is as strong as God's. All of us would wish at times, I suppose, our will were stronger, especially when we're trying to diet. I don't mean strength of will in that regard, but I mean in the capacity to make a choice that God himself will not overrule. Indeed, cannot. For he has ordained that man made in his image have the same capacity of sovereign will. And so you and I are God's equals in this respect. We will have what we choose, and he himself has chosen he will not overrule it. And by reason of having made that choice, then he therefore cannot, for he will not deny himself. He's given us this awesome capacity. An equally awesome thing is the foolishness of men who will argue God to the wall if he could, on some kind of a vain, empty proposition that man wants his own rights when he wants it, but if he really does something that is irresponsible, then then God ought to do something to override my irresponsibility. So that when by my own responsible exercise of my will, I align myself with other than God's will, I should be able to do that with impunity. And that God, if He sees that I've finally done that, rebelliously defiantly of my own will that if I go too far he should gloss it over and say well now that it's all said and done we'll we'll kind of let it go by the board it's amazing to me the capacity of man unreasoning to insist on his own will but within the restrictions that he doesn't want to have to bear the the consequences of his own responsible choices God respects what he has created in each of us too much to let us get away with that. It's not a matter of his saying, I want people to go to hell. To the contrary, we've just read in the words of Jesus, that it is not God's will that one of these little ones should perish. Who are the little ones? Well, the little ones, of course, were being illustrated as Jesus sat a child in their midst. It says in verse 2. But I want you to see that this picture, the best that Jesus could give, has to do with the teachableness and the simplicity of manifesting a child that we are all being called to. He says, for except each of you, become this way. There's something of a human arrogance that disallows that. There's something in each of us that is very, very temptable at this point. Well, I'm I'm not a child. Something of that feeling insulted. I'm not a child. How wise we would be to let me grant you five hundred years of life, of experience, of even wisdom, not just knowledge, not just personal advancement along certain lines, but well, let me grant you five hundred five hundred years. Would you like a thousand years of advancement? Of growth? Take it. But irrespective of how much we would credit to ourselves of seniority and experience with life of the acquisition of information and even the wise application of that information. I submit to you that we would never surmount our imperfection. Man must come up with an evolutionary hypothesis in order to satisfy that supposition that he ever would. But he hasn't, nor will he. Let us not dupe ourselves by the supposition that because we gain technologically that we've gained all that much morally, ethically, or spiritually. The evidence of the race is that we stand at the greatest point of our technological advance and at the greatest point of our imminent self-destruction. And that's not going to change. Man isn't going to overcome those things unaided. That's why in verse 10, Jesus said, or verse 11, he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Man is lost. Lost means that you're in a quandary a dilemma from which unaided you cannot remove yourself we may feel very much that we know where we are and not lost in that sense you may even feel you know who you are but man's lostness is his inability to remove himself from where he is without help and so the Son of Man came to save us to rescue us because it is not the will of God that any should perish and yet in the same passage of Scripture Jesus deals so powerfully and pointedly with frightening truth, very sobering truth about a place that he calls hell. Everlasting fire, hell fire, verses 8 and 9 make those terms. And Jesus says so sobering things about them that you cannot just waltz on by it as though it weren't there. We cannot attribute the lovely things Jesus says Such things as, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We cannot attribute those to him and then irresponsibly bypass things he said here, such as, if your hands or your feet are going to become of such consequence to you in how you do things, how you creatively apply yourself, insisting that the work of your hands, the pathway of your own feet, is so intent to you that you come to cross-purposes with the will of God, then Jesus, not arguing in favor of amputation, but arguing in favor of our understanding the consequences of one setting themselves against. I, I want to do what I want to do. After all, I have creative capacity. There's a uniqueness in me. In fact, these very hands... Their fingerprints, their lifeline, all indicate a uniqueness to me. No one has those hands, and that's true. But it is the Creator who creatively gave us each one the capacities that are so unique to each one of us, who himself says, I created you with that uniqueness for its fullest expression, but its fullest expression will never be discovered if you set yourself aside from or out of alignment with me man says, but I'm not sure of that. And he's fallen state. He feels this insecurity and fear. I must work it out somehow my own way. And Jesus says, if you ever become so liable to that, that you set your hand to working your own will, even arguing with a unique creativity. But I can be so creative that you set yourself against your creator and against alignment and humble submission to his will, his throne, his way to the humbling, receiving like a child of his love. He says, then cut it off, cut off that hand, cut off that foot. He said, it's better for you to be maimed than to enter into hellfire. He goes further. He takes the eye, which throughout the scripture is so frequently in poetic usage, symbolic of man's intelligence. For a look at the eye as compared with any animal eye will quickly disclose that looking into the eyes, there is something unique about the human being. Looking into the eye as the symbol of man's intelligence, Jesus says if it's your own brilliance or your eye as the visions you have or the dreams or the goals you see for yourself, that they would become obstructive to your alignment with the will of God who has vast expectations, dreams and possibilities for you. If that would ever become your opponent, then pluck it out for it's better that you be blinded than that you miss the will of god and you forever be lost in hell fire the significance of the reality of that is in the sobering words of the lord jesus and then he goes further so great is the issue that god not only warns of our need to be aligned with him but jesus goes on to say what do you think and then the heart of god spills open to us all as the great shepherd himself who came to gather lost ones as a shepherd would go for just one sheep. He would just go for one. And he said, in the same manner, it is not the Father's will that one person should perish. Pastor Jaggett says one of these little ones, and that brings me to the point. Given the credit of five hundred, a thousand years of maturity and advancement in your own personal self. You and I still are but children at the maximum of our attainment in comparison with him who is omniscient, almighty in the ancient of days. There's something of such vanity in man. I sat across a filing tray while in college with a young man about five, six years, my senior. I was about 20. He was 25, 26 years of age. He was using his veterans' resources from... Having been involved in the Korean conflict, he was using those for study at one of the local universities, and he used to delight in arguing against me, knowing I was studying for ministry, and Tommy and I so frequently would interact. And we had, a, a, I think, a, a worthwhile friendship, at least at the dimension that we could enjoy in the small time we had with each other each day working. Most of the time we were in different pursuits, but I got to know him. And it wasn't so much antagonistic, it It was philosophical. One of the most ludicrous things that I've ever heard in my life was the day that he said something to the effect of what degree of knowledge he felt man had attained in terms of the whole spectrum of possible knowledge. And I wouldn't even want to, though no one would know who the man was. I wouldn't even want to mock him now by telling you the actual figure he said. But I thought that even if that figure were true, that man knew this much, still what he knew this much about was only that small fragmentary segment of the universe that has begun to probe. And yet, man so readily, so easily will defy God, will stand up, mock the existence of God, mock the belief of heaven, defy or deny the existence of the hell. Try these words for an example of man's foolishness. I can't believe a God of love would make a place like hell. I want to offer a counter-proposition. I can't believe an intelligent human being would reject a God who loves so greatly that they say they couldn't understand that He would make a hell. See, the irony of that proposition is the people who make it themselves are denying the existence of the loving facet of His being. I can't believe a God of love would make a hell. Well, then, would you believe a God of love? Well, yes, I maybe could believe in a God of love. Well, then, how do you feel toward him? Well, if there was a God of love, I would love him. And Jesus comes to open the heart of the Father to us and the most cursory but simple, open, childlike-hearted approach to what Jesus is manifest as being in the Scripture convinces you not only of the message of a God of love, but that he has been brought in the, come to us in the person of his son and showed himself to us. And he says, I'm not willing that any should perish, and you have to come to a place of choice. Would you turn from him or to him? People say, Well, I like to think about heaven. I, I, I don't know, you know, what I think about hell, but I like to think of heaven. Well, I want to raise this question Why would anybody want to go to heaven? And be with God for all time and eternity. Why would they want to go with Him forever when they don't even want Him very much part-time in this life? If in the span of 70, 80, 90 years, give it 120, 150, if in the span of a lifetime a person says, I only want God when I want Him, why would they want to go and be with Him forever where there's no alteration of that situation? No, it's not reasonable. You see, people who want to go to heaven want the Lord in their life now. And they want Him in all of their life now. And I want to say to you as a believer in Jesus Christ and as one who believes in heaven and hell without any sermon being preached on it, I want to say very quickly and very pointedly, if heaven means that much to you, understand this now, you will always be with Him then. But why does that seem so delightful if there is anything less than having him fill all of our life now? So it's not just an argument for those who would pit themselves against him and defiance saying, I won't receive it, I won't believe it. Supposing there is a God, one says, I will not become the toady of a deity who would fry his own creatures who oppose him. But listen to these words in response to that they do become toadies of a devil who has given himself to destroy their lives in that hell forever. Oh, the blindness and the foolishness of the heart that sets itself against the simple truth of the revealed word and saying, O living God, O loving God, I come to you to align myself with your will and your way. Believing you are as you have shown yourself to be. Loving, living Father. Jesus' use of such startling words as cast into everlasting fire, lost and perish. Say enough to us for us to come to terms with the fact that we are dealing with something of cosmic significance for each one of us personally in terms of our destinies. If this were a part of the series demanding questions... The question would be this. Words which we have seen caricatured and mocked, usually by the caricature. In cartoons, a sandwich sign over a bearded prophet walking the streets of the New York Financial District. And the words read, where will you spend eternity? And as the caricature mocks the vision of a person so out of it, so remote to the contemporary realities of our day somehow it seems to disqualify the question by the mocking image in which it's set but the question needs to be answered by every man who will think where will you where will you for the revelation as we've already dealt with in the scriptures is the revelation of man receiving an eternal body we're not creatures of one arrangement with one body This body shall decay. But every human being shall be resurrected with an eternal body. A body that, lasting forever, will be lived out in heaven or in hell. Now, the word hell is used in a number of ways in the Bible, as the word heaven is. There's at least four different terms for each, and we're not going to examine all of them. For this message itself could become an extended series. Let me quickly say that in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and it would be good for you to look there with me and hold your finger in Matthew, because we're going to come back there in just a moment. In the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus speaks these words. It's a very closely parallel passage. If you'll notice, beginning in verse 42, he's talking about if any one of these little ones stumble. it's The synoptic Gospels uh, present the, very much the same message, but from different viewpoints. And you go down through in verse 45, 43, as if your hand makes you to sin, cut it off, Verse 45, your foot makes you to sin. Verse 47, if your eye makes you to sin. Let's come to the end. We won't repeat the parallel passage in Mark of what we've already read in Matthew. But he says, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God, verse 47, with one eye, than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Then he quotes from the prophecy of Isaiah, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He's talking about an endlessness. The fire is not quenched. Their worm does not die. The word that's used there is a sickening word. It's the word for maggot. And it's talking about the decadence, the decaying quality of a life set apart from God. It uses the term fire. Elsewhere, the Bible uses the term outer darkness. Let's take these terms first. The word outer darkness has to do with total dissociation From everyone and everything. Total aloneness. Outer. No one else with you. I I, I think among the saddest things you ever hear is this old saw. You talk about innocuous philosophy of man. And though it's said in jest, it's amazing how many people do have some kind of resident notion. There may be a measure of truth in it. There is none. It goes something like this. Well, if there is a hell and I go there, at least I'll have all my friends with me. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. Not only is it such an insipid observation evidencing the blindness concerning the implications and the content of hell in all that's involved in it. But it presupposes something that is totally outside the possibility of man apart, completely apart from God. The whole concept of fellowship, friendship, being with anyone is related to the love of God. God, who is love, is the fountainhead of any resource of there being a together attraction with people. Once a person is totally severed from God because the set of their will has been to go to that direction, once that takes place and is extrapolated, carried to its logical extension for an eternal length of time, they only succeed in moving further, further, further from And in the darkness, the blindness that they've chosen to live in for this life, for there are none so blind as those who will not see. And having chosen to live in that darkness, it only extends itself in deeper darkness and greater distance. Outer darkness. There is no fellowship in hell. There is no camaraderie. There is no affinity of spirit. We're talking eternal links of a distance, not just from God, but from anyone, anything. The issue of hell, the fire. I'll discuss the fire as I conclude this message, but I want to take for a moment this, and their worm dieth not. Some commentators have suggested this has to do with the plaguing, as though the brain were being ridden over with maggots thinking, I missed my chance, I missed my chance, I missed my chance. But other students have pointed out the fact that we shall receive eternal bodies, non-decayable bodies. Forgive me if this seems to be crude somehow, sickening. But when man gives himself over to decay, it is from Jesus' own lips we're hearing a figure being given to help us understand its extent. It seems as though Jesus is saying that man given over to decay would be as a dead body ridden with maggots. The only problem is... The maggots can never consume their prey because now he has received an eternal body for its judgment. And the decay and the stench attracts the maggots, but they never complete their job because the body is too durable. You say, Jack, these are horrible thoughts. Indeed, they are. Why else would God send his only begotten loving son? Why would God pay the price? of His dearly beloved one? Why would He submit His Son to scorn? Why would Jesus allow Himself to be pierced through? Why would the blood of God be poured on a mountaintop by the hands of hateful men for your sake and mine, except that God understood the cost and the consequence of man's sin and was willing to pay it Himself so that none of these little ones need perish, for it isn't the Father's will. Anyone who foo-foo's the notion of hell and claims belief in Jesus Christ doesn't understand the nature of God's heart very well yet. And anyone who foo-foo's the notion of hell as pertains to it being a very reality and say, well, I simply choose not to believe the Scriptures only needs to look about himself and see that man is quite capable of creating a hell on his own terms. So that we stand on the brink of a A nuclear inferno. Say, well, that's what I believe, though, that all the hell you get is on this earth. The emptiness of that bypasses two things. First, the fact that the Lord has offered us a great deal of heaven on this earth and you need not endure the horrors of hell and the details of your life on this earth. For God offers a salvation that is real and powerful in the present, not only for eternity. If it was only for eternity it would be a bargain best taken. But it is for time as well. But it overlooks another thing. That there is one man in human history it's very difficult to come to terms with unless you're honest with all the facts of his life. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And the fact that he came from a tomb, having been buried there, and having been sealed by the imperial power of the Roman Empire, the leading authority of the age, with guards posted to ensure that it was kept intact, And the report is that He not only came forth triumphing over death and hell, but that He comes to tell us that having triumphed over it, He invites us into that life. And there's no way that you can shake the historical reality of the risen Son of God. You can deny He rose from the dead, but you can go in a closet and deny the sun came up this morning too, but it does not change the fact that another day is dawned. And a new day is dawned for all mankind through Jesus Christ. And we've come to share in it by reason of having come to share in that we have set before us life and death heaven and hell the lord says you choose let us understand this about hell but god didn't plan it i said i'd ask you to turn back to matthew look at it quickly but in chapter 25 matthew chapter 25 verse 41 The whole passage deserves your reading. We're simply taking this one verse for right now. But the reading of the whole passage will not alter by the context what we read from this one verse. Then he, that is the Son of God, will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Isaiah chapter 14 records this event. The Bible tells us of a rebellion in heaven... The essence of the rebellion was this. One of God's creatures, and others followed in his wake, said, I will to have my will as opposed to the will of the Almighty. That is what brought about the creation of hell. And that is all who it was prepared for at that time. It was non-existent prior to that. It was created then of necessity, not by divine design, but of necessity. If you will, in the light of the almighty creator, most in closest proximity to the throne of God, was Lucifer, son of the morning, who led the choirs of heaven's worship, and vanity and pride filled his heart. I can get along without him. And set upon his own will, there was no alternative, then you shall have yours. C.S. Lewis has put it magnificently in these words. He said, there are only two kinds of people in all the universe, two kinds of beings. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God ultimately says, thy will be done. Hell was created for beings who chose their will as opposed to God's. Now, look at heaven. Heaven. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It says, even before you were around, I had plans. This is the place God designed. He didn't plan the other. Understand that. Let's get a sense of the dimension of the other. Turn with me to a passage of Scripture in the book of Isaiah. Here in these words... In Isaiah chapter 5. Turn me to Isaiah chapter 5, and there, beginning in verse 13, we read the prophecies that was immediately being addressed to a circumstance in Israel's history, Judah's history, but it was a. but it projects things that have to do with the awesomeness of hell. Verse 13. Therefore, my people, God says, have gone into captivity. Because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, I pause to say that is the Hebrew word for hell. Simply transliterated from the Hebrew letters into the English letters. Hades is the Greek word for hell. Don't make the mistake ever of saying, well, if it says Sheol and Hades, it's talking about something else. That would be as foolish as to say when a Spanish person says agua, they meant something else than water. It is simply a different word. It is another language, Sheol, hell. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged itself. We gain an insight on the fact that hell was not designed for the dimensions it has had to be enlarged to because of those that have chosen to follow in the train of the rebellion that established it. Therefore, hell has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude, this is those who go there, and their pomp. He who is jubilant shall descend into it. People shall be brought down. Each man shall be humbled. And the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. The God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Then, in contrast to that, the lambs. That's those little ones. Another analogy, analogical figure used. The lambs shall feed in their pasture. And in the waste places of the fat ones. The fat ones is not talking about a given weight. It has to do with people that indulge themselves relentlessly and willfully. And in the places that were wasted by them instead now, it says the strangers, and that's the idea or the word for foreigners. So it isn't only a matter of Jewish covenant, it's a matter of the Gentiles as well who will to do God's will. They shall partake in that blessing that was lost by those who chose to indulge themselves. But what was wasted by them, God shall replenish. For those that like lambs, he come to feed in his pasture, and like foreigners, come as aliens brought back, a relationship with Him. Verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope that say, let Him make speed and hasten His work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. What is He saying? It's that old statement, that old play. If there's a God, then let Him strike me dead. Let's see Him do something. If there's a miracle, prove it to me. There's a God of all power. Show me something. Verse 21. Woe to those that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to the men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. Who justify the wicked for a bribe. And take away justice from the righteous man. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff. So their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will descend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Lord of the Holy One of Israel. This passage of scripture speaks for itself. Say, Pastor, this is a tough subject, isn't it? Yes, it is. But it's a real truth. On contrast to that, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Revelation. I would so much rather talk about heaven. But hell needs to be faced as a stark reality, the horror of hell. But think with me just a moment on the glory of heaven. When I say I would rather present the subject of heaven, I'm reminded of the words some time back. One of the men in our congregation told me of how he received Jesus when he was five years old. He was in a regular service in a Baptist church in the southwestern part of the nation. A guest evangelist was preaching on hell. At the end, the man gave an invitation. He said, everybody that didn't want to go to hell and hadn't made Jesus their Savior, come forward. If you don't want to go to hell, you come forward right now. Boy, he said, I hot-footed it to the altar. He said, I would later come to understand that it wasn't coming to receive Jesus so much as it was running from hell. He says, the fact of the matter is that the man hadn't said, if you if you want to go to heaven instead of hell. He said, if he'd have said, if you want to go to Philadelphia, I'd have gone there. I just didn't want to go to hell. But there is this glorious option. It's mentioned in the passage of Scripture we started with in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus said, speaking of the little ones, their angels do always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. He speaks of the kingdom of heaven and its present implications of the kingdom in our lives is one thing, but it emanates out of the presence of the Father who is in heaven. Your Father who in heaven does not will that one of these little ones perish. Heaven, heaven, heaven. In the text we already read, in contrast to everlasting fire, the eternal torment of the awesome awfulness of hell. We get just a little more of a picture of it. I want to read extensively from this beautiful, beautiful revelation of God's word. First 1, chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Verse 2, Revelation 21. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with them, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Remember we read just a moment ago? We read this beautiful statement, Prepared for you from before the, found, from, from the foundation of the world. Verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven plagues came to me and talked to me, saying, Come and I'll show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And she had great and high walls with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Then he describes the three gates in each area. And the walls, the foundations, verse 14 says, were the names of the apostles. Then verse 15, and he talked with me, he that talked with me, measured the city, its gates and wall. And the gate was laid out as a square, the length as great as its breadth. Measured the city and its reed, 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, height, or equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is of an angel. And the construction of its wall was of jasper, the city of pure gold, like clear glass, Foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with all kinds of precious stones, and he lists them down until we come to verse 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. And the nations are the peoples of those who are saved. "...shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and there shall by no means enter in anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And He showed me a pure river." A river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits. The tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face. And His name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. Before any doubter arrogantly shouts that he chooses to reject the God who made hell, he should first stand honestly Before the God who made heaven. Because the living God who made heaven made it designed for man. From the foundation of the world it was designed. The hell that exists as a stark reality he did not plan. It became a necessity by reason of beings who opposed his will. And then it's been enlarged by reason of those who choose to believe the lie. Sired, sponsored... And advanced by the one who, among other things, says, you don't need to believe in hell. You can indulge yourself. And what else would he say? For that is the pattern that he's established for himself. Inevitably, the question rises. But but couldn't a person have a second chance? Couldn't a person have another chance? The evidence of Scripture not only gives no offer of a second chance beyond this life, none at all, but the evidence of Scripture underscores the significance of responsible choice in this life so much that it's as though the Lord is saying in this lifetime the godlike quality of your will is exercised with such definitive finality that after you have gone beyond this life, you won't want to change your mind. One author wrote so effectively of people in an afterlife given a choice But what they do is they always argue over and over from the same arguments they argued in this life. As though saying, I I need to be honest with myself. What I said in that life, I'm still going to hold that position. And God allows you that right of will. But the choice of this lifetime is the choice you will live with forever. What makes the fire of hell? And with this I conclude... The heat of hellfire is the product of the friction resulting from a will that is chosen to run cross-current, cross-grain to the one who created all things. When you set yourself in direct antagonism through the action of your will to the one who willed you into being, that friction produces all the heat that's needed to constitute hell and projected to an endless, infinite dimension into ever-deepening darkness and an eternal body that is the manifestations and tokens of its own decay surrounding it. Ever-deepening darkness, ever-greater distance from any sense of kinship and fellowship, you have hell and beings that choose their own. I am not being cute or clever When I say the caricatures that we have seen, however cleverly done in this lifetime. A Darth Vader and his sinister hatefulness. The reading of Faust and seeing the picture of the devil in the person of Mephistopheles. That any of the figures we see, whether it's classical or contemporary imagery, do not begin to tax the horror of hell creeping into the philosophy of man and into a generation today are such things as as Vader's second choice, chance to come back, having submitted to the dark side of the force. And there comes the notion that man ought to get a second chance. We ought to have the opportunity to come back. And the only opportunity is in this lifetime. But that's long enough. And the God who created us in his image will never violate the dignity of your power of choice. And so it is he who says, it is not my will that you should perish. Choose you today who you will serve. This day, he says, choose life. And then he tells us in these magnificent words, the whole of the truth, which I'd like to ask you to conclude by quoting with me. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that into every heart there would come the holy sobriety that your Son Jesus meant us to lay hold of, as he taught so pointedly of both the will of the Father that we never perish, And the horrible reality when we will our own way instead. I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you let our hearts be fixated with gratitude to you for the joy of life you open to us now and eternally. And let the love of Jesus Christ, showing your love, Father, draw any that have never aligned their will with yours into that alignment. The scripture quotations used in this recording are from the New King James Version, copyright to 1979, 1980, and 1982. Thomas Nelson Incorporated, Publishers.